Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is Arthur Geese. Arthur is the, the co-host of the long-running Rebel FM podcast and the former reviews editor at Polygon, as well as writing for a, a bunch of other outlets um, over his, his writing career. And recently, just left that job to go back to university and, and follow his, his passion um, and, and study art. My tone there went a bit weird. It sounded like I didn't approve of that. I totally do. I think it's a brilliant idea. You'll you'll hear from the the interview, which is a total treat, by, by the way. Um, I, episode one hundred and one. I, I was so delighted with the response to last week's episode with uh, with Tim Schafer. I got so many lovely messages and and people sharing the show. And oh man, it was amazing. I discovered some weird things. Um, I discovered that uh, my feed, uh, my podcast feed, only limits to the the last hundred episodes so if you scroll down through whatever podcast app you use you'll see like i think it's it'll probably be episode eight now that it starts from um, but rest assured all those episodes uh, are still available you can just go to they're all on the, the website there's no way i can make the feed bigger i don't think which is a bit annoying but they're all still available and fully downloadable from uh, the the website which is com forward slash checkpoints and uh, as always i do encourage people to dig back into the archive there's some uh, amazing chats uh, a nice companion piece to this episode actually would be uh, with arthur's co-host of rebel fm anthony gallegos it's kind of nice to hear these kind of two uh, divergent stories that kind of cross over um and kind of converge at tower records um you know because they both love video games it's, it's a beautiful story so yeah, so thanks to everyone for being nice about episode 100. And if you want to listen to the first couple of episodes, uh, you just go to the website, which is com forward slash checkpoints. And uh, while I'm reeling off uh, website addresses, I may as well let you know how you can keep in touch with the show. You can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, if you really like the show, there's a Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. All donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, if you really like the show, but you don't have any cash at the minute, that's fine, obviously. Um, rate and review it. Tell a friend, share it on social media. All that stuff uh, helps grow the audience and uh, make the show uh, make the show even more popular. There's no, there's, there's no getting around it. That, that's, that's my aim. <laughs> but mainly because I speak to brilliant people who have brilliant stories and you, you get to kind of you get to know people a little bit better like like Arthur's a prime example I've listened to Rebel FM for years I've read a lot of his work uh, and there was tons of stuff that came up in this show that I, I didn't know about about him and and his life and the, the house of games played a role in, in all of those aspects um, so it's brilliant uh, creator of show claims show is brilliant breaking news um, but, but it really is like it's really good stuff uh, one thing i should mention in this episode that there's i think there was building work going on near arthur so there's a lot of kind of ambient crane and building noises uh, so just you know imagine you're just going for a stroll with us uh, around the city um it, it works quite well like i was fooled a couple of times through it so it's, it's bonus immersive material um okay i think that's a i think that's a serviceable introduction 
Okay, so I'll be back next week, as always, with a new episode and a new guest. Thanks so much for downloading. Let's get on with the show. Let's, let's let's just start then. Let's do. Uh, I'll do a formal introduction for the for the sake of ceremony. So, Arthur, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Arthur Geese, formerly of a website called Polygon, currently of a podcast called Rebel FM. And so, how is this? This is quite recent since you've you've left Polygon. It's just a couple of weeks. How is that? How is that so far? Uh, it still feels bizarre. Uh, I still find myself wondering if I've made a terrible mistake um, because I left. <laughs> so, a, what is it that you've done, actually? Uh, I left a very well-paying job in games editorial to flush tens of thousands of dollars down the toilet for a master of fine arts degree. <laughs> that's amazing though i mean like I, I could totally see why that would be there would be a lot of kind of existential dread about that but clearly you know you, you seem like a sensible man like i'm sure you've put a lot of thought into this yeah i um you know i i, I did it because i mean for a lot of reasons um you know uh i'm not in my 20s anymore i am well into my 30s and uh I think that there was a point a couple of years ago where I started thinking about uh, things that I would want in my life, things that I would regret not doing, and doing this, the the MFA thing, um, pursuing art more seriously than I had been, uh, was pretty much at the top of the list. Um, and uh, there are obviously lots of other reasons behind it, and we can talk about that at some point later if you want to. But Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it, it came down to what I wanted my life to be and I, what I wanted more of and than I had. So, so like when, when you, you're going to go and pursue this master of fine arts, is it just, I guess the, the kind of notion of doing that and, you know, of really pushing your, your art as far as you can, is, is that all that you're necessarily thinking about? You're not thinking, right, I'm going to do this and then that'll lead to that and that and that. Um, it's just, I want to do this and see how far I get. No, I, there's definitely, um, some goal oriented sort of motivation behind it. Um, because sort of speaking with working artists and, and sort of like researching it, um, the, this is funny. This is something that's that that pertains to a lot of jobs and a lot of um, professional fields that are not just sort of nine to five work days. Um, that mm-hmm. networking and who you know and who you meet is as important, if not more important, than anything else. Um, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And going to an institution with a track record uh, is a a path to meeting people within an industry uh that are active that are working that are like able to facilitate the success of others and also to become part of a community uh is important in something that's as small as the art community is and the same thing applies to the games press or to video games that yeah that something as small as that is where almost everyone has at least heard of everyone else um, yeah. to sort of 
become a part of that community is a key component in in succeeding in that field and so going to grad school in addition to letting me spend a lot of time sort of focusing on on my art and and how I can evolve that and giving me a space to work on it is also an opportunity to become part of community and to sort of learn the way that world works more um, and so it's not it's not just a, a thing of I, I want time to paint because I could just do that I do think I think like I think what you're doing is is I think everybody should do I think it should almost be compulsory in that same way that people kind of when you hit 18 you're supposed to go and go to university I feel like when people hit like 45 they, everyone should have to go again yeah. just as a refresher because I, I think it just, it'd be so good for just society as a whole for all of those reasons yeah I think it would be good for people to have breaks from the grind and be able to mm-hmm. sort of reimmerse themselves in in a expansion of their cultural knowledge but I, I think that especially for someone who's 18 19 20 the opportunity to be around people who are not the people you grew up with is both an opportunity to sort of develop those critical thinking skills and also just an opportunity to be around people who don't have the baggage of, of knowing what your larval human stage looked like where you don't (laughs) have that baggage, where you don't have the obligation to be anything other than what you want to be. Um, Yeah. I think that that's nice. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, a wonderful opportunity that not a lot of pe- people get necessarily and so uh, i'm excited on your behalf even if you are a little nervous which i'm, I'm it's totally understandable when do you when do you actually start uh classes actually start this week um my first oh, classes crazy. start tomorrow i've been uh on campus for the last week or so there were three days of orientation um and, uh, are you with a bunch of kids? Are you like the you know hello fellow kids? Mean there are, there are other grad students. I'm not the oldest person there, um, although okay, I'm older good. than quite a few people there. Because um, <laughs> orientation is, is that'll be fun. Is freshman undergraduates as well as incoming graduates. It's you can uh, go like kega parties and all sorts. It'd be brilliant. Jeez, oh, uh, that's just not <laughs> my thing. Uh, but it's you know it's interesting. There are a lot of interesting, very art school people around. So you know, it's I'm looking forward to seeing what that all looks like and means. And I assume you can still do some game stuff if you if you want to if you feel the urge. Sure. I mean, I was just playing a game right now before we started recording, uh, and I, uh, for me at least with some games they're of chief method of social interaction for me, the way that I engage with my friends and and do things with my friends. So, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, games are a thing that I, that will continue to be part of my life. And also I, school is expensive and financial aid is in short supply. So I, I will continue to work in in a capacity around games, just not necessarily as public um, as what I've done previously. I'm already in conversations with some people about various consulting opportunities. So, cool. Well, let's uh, let's dig back into it then, Arthur. So, uh, if you can remember, what was your your very first experience of a video game? Um. So I I, I was thinking about this question, and and I have. The one that I just remember as facts and the one I remember as an experience. Um, the first one I remember was playing, I think it was Empire Strikes Back on the Atari 2600. 
uh, at okay. a cousin's house. And I remember it being extremely bad. Uh, I think they also had E.T. So I played E.T. on Atari. <laughs> um, and that... Um, I think that there was like a border, like a baseline fascination there, but it wasn't uh, until I think about a year, a year and a half later, around the Christmas of '86, when I got a Nintendo Entertainment System uh, for Christmas, and I was very young uh, at that point. And so that wasn't something you necessarily petitioned for. That was just. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily remember. I think it was just in keeping with the things that I liked. Like, I loved Transformers and Thundercats and all yeah. that crap. And so it just seemed like a logical extension, probably, of the things that I like. Also, it quickly became apparent from the multiple hours that my father and uncle spent, quote, setting it up, um, <laughs> that it was a gift for everyone else as well as me. Or at least it was a, an object of fascination for lots of people. Um, That's so. good, though. I, I like. I, like, I always like to hear about parents getting involved as well. Like, did that continue on, or was that just a, a short-lived interest, or did they continue playing as you grew up? You know, I I think that um, at first there was some sort of engagement with it. There was a lot of talk of, well, if you beat this game, we'll get you another game, and that didn't last very long. Um, I remember <laughs> excitement expressed to my parents when I was extremely young about beating parts of Super Mario Brothers that were very difficult. Um, and that lasted to a degree, but it wasn't something that uh, that everyone in my family necessarily liked. Although, like, there were times where I would come home from school and find my dad playing Cubert. Cubert was a particular fixation of his, which is unfortunate because that's one of the more rage-inducing games i think that you could ever play um oh it's so good though i've got a real soft spot for cuba i don't know why i think i first started playing it i don't think i even played it until emulation came around and it just it was one of those ones that really stuck with me it really feels so easy to play it feels like a game sort of um rooted in a very british software development transition i think more than a lot of the sort of like japanese platformers and i don't know if that's the case but it just feels that way i think so that it's got a crazy rhythm to it the way you move it's i don't know something hypnotic about it and a really just bizarre sensibility like even for 8-bit yeah. games like a really bizarre sensibility so um so yeah and uh, whereabouts in the in the country was this uh i grew up in southern california uh in the county of san diego in a city called imperial beach um and that's where i spent basically my whole life until i was 21 um, and then I left. That sounds college. nice. It's not. It's, nice it's not a nice place. Um, it is it's next to Imperial a, Beach. It is. Um, it's it's one of the more economically depressed parts of San Diego. Um, it's right on the border, like literally right on the border. Um, it's next to San Ysidro, and both of them are adjacent to Tijuana. There's a estuary that separates Tijuana with Imperial Beach, and th- that's a very prime border crossing for uh, undocumented immigrants. And so they that would that was a, a everyday presence uh, there. Um, there were undocumented immigrants like walking around the streets trying to avoid um, border patrol. Border patrol was a daily uh, appearance in, in my life back then. Um, was that fine? I mean, I don't know. I've never spoken to anyone who'd had that experience. Um, I It didn't their presence didn't bother me um 
and it's strange given the political leanings of my family I learned about later, uh, there was never a lot of anger toward them. There was a lot of sympathy uh, toward them that they were fleeing something fairly horrific, trying to make a better life for their families. And they were, it was often families. Um, And so it, um, it definitely shaped the way that I've looked at um, undocumented immigrants over the course of my life, because these are people who had nothing and weren't trying to take things from people in my life. um, Although they don't necessarily agree with that now. And like, how did, how did uh, to kind of, awkwardly bring it back on topic like how how did games kind of feature in that kind of arena like was it um like you know i mentioned earlier it seems like everyone had nintendo was that your experience like was it uh did you bond with people in school and make friends over video games i think that there was always like the the sort of grade school bullshittery around nintendo games because like it was so ubiquitous like you were saying and so people would make up stories and make up secrets that they heard. Like uh, I'm sure that the Nintendo uncle is a, is a joke that everyone's heard that's been beaten into the ground, but it really was like, that was the thing back then that, well, I have a oh, uncle that works at Nintendo and he said this. And if you just do this, then you'll see this in the game. It's like, Oh, in Castlevania, if you do this thing just right, the, the bat plane will show up across the moon and, and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, I I I was pretty socially isolated um, in in elementary school through quite a bit of school. Uh, I was never into sports. Uh, I was always very cerebral. I guess I guess that's a way of saying just inwardly drawn. Um, I was much more yeah. interested in in reading and drawing and playing video games um, and video games like as a sort of introverted person who's not big into sports or athletics, um, video games were just always there. They were always a part of my life. And, and honestly, but did you not find your people though? Like, cause that's like obviously a relatively common, um, kind of childhood persona and not persona, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, but people generally gravitate towards each other. Like people who are like that a bit more sort of socially awkward, they would, that that's certainly my case and most people I've spoken to not so much there for some reason i think that we were all, we were also pretty poor um not like poverty stricken but struggling lower class and i think that more than most people would care to admit kids are really good at determining when someone is different and when someone is less fortunate than them and i think that the natural response is ostracism in those kinds of situations. I, maybe it's yeah. less so now, but but then it was definitely a, a situation where I think that I was seen as different that um, that I just didn't necessarily belong. That there were lots of, there that my clothes were not cool. That I was not cool. That um, I don't think I smelled like some like cliches are but i think that i just like it was easy to pick me out as someone who didn't yeah. want to play sports with the other kids who wasn't interested in in a lot of what they were interested in who didn't see a lot of movies or or watch a lot of the same cool cartoons that other kids did and so uh you're breaking my heart arthur i i mean 
you know, it's, <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, no, it was, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, that. I'm I'm trying to break the kind of the darkness of it. I totally know what you mean because I had exactly the same kind of upbringing, you know. And you have weirdly, it was it was uh, trainers in in my school. That was that was the barometer by which sure. you, you were judged. Uh, and I never had good trainers because they're really expensive, and that was therefore I I suck. But right. I did I did have my other pals that also sucked, and we we did all those you know cliche things. We sat and played video games together, and we read books and made up games and stuff. Yeah, I'm I sad that you didn't find those people. I think that I met a couple, but it it always just felt kind of tenuous. Um, also, there weren't there were there weren't like. Just culturally speaking, there were a ton of of Mexican kids, and I think that there was like a level of antagonism there that was just assumed. Um, and I don't like I don't want to sort of psychoanalyze where all that was coming from, but between that and like the the white kids who were clearly better off financially, it was just. It was just a, an awkward, strained period. And then around third grade, I got sent to um, a gate school, which is gifted and talented. And stuff got a little better there because, like, the, the kids there, like, thought books were slightly cooler. But that was also sort of magnified the the income gap stuff even more. Yeah. And I think that to a degree... Smart kids can be so much worse than, oh yeah, than they can, kids. They can be really like, cruel. Um, yeah, they're they're le- they're less brute force and more sort of sadistic about it. Um, yeah, and, uh, and honestly, like just a lot of that sort of followed me through until parts of high school. Um, but video games were a sort of consistent presence in my life in a way that very little else was between books and reading and drawing uh, and video games. That was like a lot of my life growing up. So are there, are there any that kind of particularly stand out as having a, a specific impact on you for whatever reason? Um, Game-wise, God, uh, I mean, I was... Just, like from that age, I'm talking. I mean, I remember getting Mario 2 the day it came out, like how that was like such a big cultural moment. That was like one of the first big cultural moments that I remember um, gaming-wise, like how excited the whole world seemed to be for Mario 2, which is funny in retrospect, sort of understanding the basis or the origins of that game. Um, But uh, there were a lot of weird games on Nintendo. Like, I remember playing the shit out of Goonies 2. Um, Stuff like Blue Stinger, which was uh, like one of the first twin b releases i think in america it was yes, localized yes, yes. blue stinger um and how absolutely weirdly all of these game. games seem to be featured on uh agdq now you always yeah. have a block of these kind of weird sure. obscure uh nes games um stuff like uh top gun uh gradius there was a lot of gradius uh contra um and the Zelda games, obviously, like, really captured me, including Zelda 2, um, which, in, it, like, I will forever hold a soft spot for. Um, the Castlevania games, uh, particularly Castlevania 2, a game where, because I was young and stupid, I got really stuck in that game for a long time because of the bad localization of it. Um, the part where it wants you to, it says to kneel holding a crystal at a cliff face. Okay. And I just could not, for the life of me, figure out what that meant. 
and I don't remember, I, I never read like a tip about it or anything like that. And there are two points of that game where you need to equip a crystal and crouch for like five seconds or something. And then something will happen and that will pro progress the game. And I got stuck. I just could not figure out what to do with those parts until finally I did it by accident. Um, I mean, five seconds is a lifetime. Yeah, for it, it was. You it was. You didn't stop and do anything for that long. It was something else. Uh, but just those kinds of games, Castlevania three, like sequels, were such a huge deal then. Um, they just really seemed like special occasions, like big events. Like, oh my god, this last game was so good. What will this new game be? Um, and uh, just really, I think that's still kind of true, though. Like, I mean, games are one of the few kind of art forms where sequels tend to be better generally like usually because there's such an iterative process of games you know sure I, I think generally sequels are better i i think being in the bubble i'm in um because regardless of whether or not i'm in the games press like a lot of these people are my friends and former peers and and uh i will forever be in that bubble to a degree that there's so much just complaining and cynicism about big series sequels and you know that just wasn't what it was like when i grew up because everything felt no. so new like there wasn't a 20 year yeah. legacy of sequels so um <laughs> like but yeah i just remember so many of these things sort of dotting my awareness of pop culture like i remember playing mega man 3 a copy that i had borrowed from someone at school um uh, while Desert Storm was happening, uh, I remember this weird. Th I have a lot of strange sense memories of playing video games when weird stuff in the world was happening, and that's definitely one of the big ones. Like that in the other room while they while they were watching the invasion of Iraq the first time, uh, or defending Kuwait or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that I was playing Mega Man Three in the other room, and. Uh, just like these That's strange, crazy. yeah, just these strange sort of juxtapositions of games with world events in my head. <laughs> you have defeated Saddam and you've gained yeah. the cruise missile arm. Sure, yeah, and and I mean like st that. That's one of the things that has sort of followed me throughout my life. That there have been like games have been adjacent to some like truly bizarre, horrifying strange moments of history um i remember like 9 11 happening and playing castlevania on game boy advance i remember the 2004 presidential election and just being crushed by it and trying to drown my sorrows in halo 2 because it had just come out and uh you know that's just like the world is, is the world happens uh as we we sort of engage with these like interactive entertainments yeah i mean i i, I that, that was actually one of the big inspirations to do in the show it was uh, a friend of mine um dan he's he's been on the show before he works i don't know where he works for now he, he he worked on that's you the ps4 game that's just come out um but he wrote an article for a fanzine a video game fanzine we both used to write for like over a decade ago about how this kind of link he had in his head between vagrant story or maybe vandal hearts i always get those confused and uh, the death of Princess Diana, which I suppose is quite topical. It's like 20 years, 20 years ago now. Sure. Uh, and that really stuck in my head because I'd never heard that. Because that is the same for me. I, I have all these associations with games and moments in the same way that people do with 
songs and stuff and i just it, it, it's not something people talk about it as much but yeah of course they are so I'm, I'm assuming like with with your early love of games then that just kind of continued you know you were just always then jonesing for the next thing yeah as you the, got older there was a period in my life where like a, a sort of three or four year period or maybe a little shorter where I really fell off of games. Um, or I guess there's been a couple periods. I think. How old How old would you have been? Um, I think in high school I didn't play as many games because I was at a visual and performing arts school where I had two hours minimum of art classes a day and I just didn't have access to a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. I had sporadic access to a PlayStation. I remember playing a lot of Symphony of the Night and some other stuff, um, some other sort of weird 32-bit era games but uh that changed a little bit toward the end of high school but uh right after high school i was supposed to go to to art school and didn't and so i played a lot of video games i bought a saturn as soon as it came out i played a ton of saturn games but then when the saturn died that really like killed a lot of my interest in game stuff because i felt so burned and so jaded on the whole industry um and then it wasn't until I picked up an Xbox and sort of fell ass over tea kettle into Halo that I started to get back into it. And then I went to college um, and sort of had my my ebbs and flows of game stuff. But around the time of the 360 launch is when I really got back into uh, into gaming. And I guess it hasn't really abated since then. I'm I'm fascinated by this this Saturn kind of. Uh fatigue like how, how how do you mean that you know were you just crushed that it failed so badly so uh once i after i got a nintendo um i got a genesis uh around 92 or 93 i think um and when you're a kid especially a lower income kid uh which i definitely was um i think that you become really emotionally attached to the system that you get because yeah like that's all you get and so like it, like your whole if it's a thing you care about your a lot of your self-worth gets tied up into this thing because if it doesn't do well then you don't get stuff for it and it's the only thing you have and i think that there's like this sort of desperation about it and i i was definitely like very into genesis stuff because that's what i had um and in retrospect that's a little sad because i don't think that the system holds up as well uh but going from Genesis into Saturn, like I was very much like, oh, Saturn is so much better than PlayStation for all these reasons. It was like the spec wars again. Uh, and that was a phase of disillusionment, sort of watching Sega bungle that so completely. Uh, and then when the Dreamcast came out, uh, it seemed like it was off to a good start and then they just bungled it again. And, and I felt really burned as a Sega fan by the way that that system failed because it felt like Sony didn't kill the Dreamcast with games or a product. They killed it with promises of what the PlayStation 2 would be. I, did, did, I, I don't know. Did, did you get, like, in the UK, certainly, the whole PlayStation um, marketing was, was entirely around kind of built around it being cool and they they would put um playstations into clubs and stuff so there'd be a room where you could go and play wipeout in between presumably taking ecstasy and dancing the night away like and it just it very much had this kind of cool counterculture um 
PR. So that definitely wasn't the way that PlayStation was here. Like, that's just not what video games were here. And I think that here, video games were marketed as toys much more than they were in the UK, in part because of the UK's, I think, uh, enthusiast PC culture. Um, like, PCs weren't just for toys. Yeah. Like, they were for, like programming like people learn to do things on on like on the the spectrum and, and all that stuff and and I think that that led to a, a more serious sort of cultural cachet behind games as, as a thing in the UK and I think that that allowed Sony to sell uh, the PlayStation as something that could be cool there much more so than it was here um like yeah. here, even when older people played it, it was still a toy. It was a game. And there it was much more entertainment. Um, and so I don't think that Sony ever quite got the same level of cool here that they did there. And I still don't think that they have. I still think that... Yeah, and it's just weird because that's just that's that's my entire memory of it is still that that's why Sega lost, basically, because PlayStation 8 marketed them. But obviously that wasn't the case necessarily everywhere. Right, I, I think that Sony lost or Sega lost because the people who were running everything were bad at it or the people making decisions were bad at it. Um, <laughs> and that was like a, a thing that I admitted to myself later on, especially I think once the Sega games started appearing on Xbox and they were almost all bad. Um, it was like, wait, maybe they're just bad at this. Maybe it wasn't Sony that killed Sega. Maybe Sega killed Sega. Um, oh, yeah. Such a shame. Well, you know, disillusioned Sega kids have way worse things to say about Sega than anybody. Um, <laughs> so, th- when did you start? Again, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming that you would have had an interest in in magazines and stuff because that, like, pre-internet, that was how you got exposed to video game culture. Um, and given what you've gone on to do, like, was that a oh, big part I of mean, your youth? Definitely. Uh, basically, from Nintendo Power on, I remember having the first Nintendo Power, um, just like fucking everybody else. Uh, when you're poor, like a lot of your experience of games isn't from playing them because they were so expensive. Uh, it was from reading about them and sort of living vicariously through these just massive, massive game magazines, like 300 page electronic gaming monthlies and like 200 page game pros and just consuming every bit of game magazine I could find because it was so much cheaper than a game. Like a video game magazine was $5 for just all this content and a game was 50 to 60 to 80 to 90, depending on what it was. And so um, the 90s became like this golden era of game magazines where there were just so many yeah. of such wildly varying quality. Uh but it didn't matter because I would just like consume as much as I possibly could of all of these magazines and like develop this vocabulary of gaming that was sort of belied by how few games comparatively that I could play. And I don't think that that's a unique yeah. experience, but I think that they were a means to an end to vicariously experience video games um, when I was uh, in elementary school and then in high school i think that once i went to college the the ziff davis sort of stable of magazines and the stable personalities that sort of took shape and became began to form what eventually would become one up 
was massively influential for me. Like those are people that I would follow sort of not obsessively, but like really diligently and like really try to understand those people and where they're coming from. And, and I think that their segue into podcasts and stuff, that was like the straw. And then also watching G4 basically from its inception until it's shut down, um, was a, a big formative experience for me, which I literally was joking about with Adam Sessler last night. So. <laughs> um, well, I want to go back briefly to like the the sort of the the Sega days and stuff. Like, clearly, you had they were a big part of your life. Like, are there any what are your standout kind of Sega Saturn games that I imagine you would defend Saturn, to the hilt? God, in uh, Saturn is weird. Like, it is weird. That's why I'm bringing it up because not many people mention the Saturn. I remember convincing myself that Knights was good. Um, Knights is good. A, a notion I... It's not. Oh, I dis, I've disabused myself of that notion by reviewing Knights again uh, four or five years ago on Xbox 360. Knights is not, is not a good <laughs> but game. But surely, I mean, at the time, I think it was good. Like It was incredibly inventive. It was very flashy. And that was sort of Sega's formula, like to get people's attention, to show them something they hadn't seen before. And if it's weird enough and different enough and flashy enough that's enough to distract from some pretty limited sort of mechanics and design sensibilities <laughs> um well what kind of uh, brought you back into it then so after you left you said you sort of um came back when you got an xbox like why did you get an xbox was there any particular reason or did you just happen to come upon one um i'm trying to remember i think i played halo at a friend's house uh, yeah, I played, he got, he was the friend who got all the stuff because his parents were pretty well off. Um, and at that point, like I had like a, a decent sort of core group of friends, um, that I had met mostly playing D and D in high school, hilariously, uh, because I hadn't found enough ways to be socially <laughs> ostracized. Um, you got the full report card. But, uh, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I played Halo at his house and just remember being just completely floored um, and also really loving the controller because uh, I'm one of those people. I, I have bigger hands um, and the PlayStation controller, especially like we would play just hours and hours of Street Fighter Alpha 2 or 3 and after a while it would just like cripple my hands. Um, and so to hold a controller that felt really comfortable in my hands was just like ridiculous. It was shocking to me. Um, and this is after I had gotten accustomed to playing like a lot of quake three on dreamcast. And it just felt like such a, a brilliant implementation of shooter stuff. And just the game was so good. Yeah. And everything about it was just really, really good. The surround sound implementation was really good. It was just like an amazing game. And I got super excited for it and got one. Uh, uh, and like, that was it. Like there were just so many weird games to chase and follow, uh, on that system. Uh, and because again, like gaming magazines at that point were just so vibrant and aggressive and, and common at that point that it was just easy to, to sort of get back into that system. Um, and I had access to a PlayStation two, uh, pretty regularly. And like, there's PlayStation two games that I played just an ungodly amount of time. Like Gran Turismo three, I played so much, maybe more than any racing game I've ever played. Uh, but, but yeah, I, and how old were you like during this then. sort of period? Like when you came back in, uh, early twenties, like I just, I, I think turned, I had turned 20, 
um, at that point. And, and had so, you had you ever thought about like pursuing anything to do with with games? Was that something you would? Because clearly you had done I think art what, and things as when you were younger. So when I was growing up, I was like, oh man, it'd be cool to make a game. Like having no idea how games are made, uh, and like to draw like to, to to draw stuff to be in a game and and just not understanding any of that. But that was never like a thing that I've put any real thought into. Um, and now knowing how games are made, I'm even less likely to do that <laughs> because Jesus, um, like I know too much about how the sausage is made and, and how little, I think I have a place in that as far as art stuff goes. Um, so were you thinking about doing anything or were you just kind of the classic twenties malaise? Uh, so I was supposed to go to art school, uh, coming out of high school and, uh, about two weeks before I was supposed to go to uh, the School of Visual Arts, which is a very prestigious uh, art school in New York, um, uh, the money just fell through. Like, I realized that there, I would not have the money to go. Like, I, I wasn't getting enough financial aid to cover everything. And so, uh, just found out right, basically, before, right before I was supposed to leave that I wasn't going. I was just devastated. Um, oh, man, that is brutal. And so uh, got a job working in an adult bookstore, uh, <laughs> uh, largely graveyard shifts uh, and night shifts, and just that's um, a rough summer. Yeah, it was it was not not a good time for me. Um, and uh, like right after that, uh, the Dreamcast came out, and so I got one and like just like bought games like crazy um, because I had money for the first time because I was working um, and not paying rent. Although that quickly changed. Um, and so I, I was out on my own, like about six, seven months later and just really struggling to survive because, um, San Diego is an, is actually an incredibly expensive city to live in. Um, and that was when I learned what it was like to try to scrape by on a high school education, uh, like to try to find jobs, to try to survive, uh, in that environment. And so that sort of really informed what my understanding was of the world. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I played a lot of games at that point because that was like an escape. Um, yeah. But yeah. Are there any particular sort of standout ones? Uh, like I said, I remember just playing the living crap out of like every Dreamcast game that would come out. Like, code veronica and sonic adventure which was terrible and i didn't admit that to myself um soul caliber like a ton of soul caliber uh power stone like pretty much every big dreamcast game for the first year i picked up uh and a lot of not big dreamcast games um that kind of it makes a bit more sense that you would like once that fails like after the kind of year you would have had it's like oh geez like what else is going to go wrong there? Yeah, know? it was it was just. I, there was a confluence of things that I think just made me feel very bitter about that stuff, and so, uh, so yeah, that definitely absolutely once, and the way the Dreamcast died was so abrupt, just so ridiculously abrupt. Like over the, it was like over the course of two months of game magazines, it went from. The Dreamcast is really aggressively going forward, and then it was like the Dreamcast is dead, uh, and just like that kind of whiplash made like just really, really burn me out. That is brutal. So, so what? Like, how did you 
end up sort of pursuing the path that you, you did then? Like, what did you do for the next sort of couple of years? So um, I just sort of floated around uh, for about a year and a half. And then an ex's mom sort of browbeat me into into the idea of going to college again. Um, but I was sort of in this weird position where to go to art schools, they're like... I don't know how familiar you are with the American education system and testing, but basically uh, you have to take the SATs for everywhere, essentially. Uh, but they're like art schools. That's all they, they care about. Like take the SATs. That's fine. And otherwise they'll judge you on your, your portfolio. Um, but for UCs and other higher, higher learning institutions, they, they want you to take SAT two subject exams like they, or like ACT subject exams. Like, and I had never taken those because I didn't need to, cause I only applied to art schools. And so I had to spend a couple of months studying after being out of high school for a couple of years, studying to take these exams. Um, and so I did that and I studied for them, uh, and I took them and I did pretty well on them. Um, and, then I had to apply to schools, but, uh, it turns out that in the time from when I graduated to when I applied to schools again, that the sort of reputation of my high school had gone down and a lot of, uh, admissions officers at colleges have these little lists of schools where their GPA and such count for less than other schools. And so, uh, I applied to a bunch of UCs and didn't get into any of them. And, I don't remember if it was out of desperation or just real abject confusion. I contacted UC Davis's admissions office to ask what had happened, like why I'd been declined. And they looked over my, my stuff and actually told me to appeal, uh, which I did because I didn't have anything else to do, but appeals are almost never granted. Um, and so I'd filed my appeal. I had to do it that day. Like that day was the last day to do it. And so I had to run around like a chicken with my head cut off and fax appeal paperwork and a, and a statement to, uh, to the school. And then two weeks later, I got another letter from them saying that I had been admitted. Oh, thank goodness. I was hoping um, for there would be redemption on this story. Yeah. There, I got both the fuck you letter and the welcome letter from UC Davis, That's amazing. Uh, which is kind of funny. In retrospect. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so that became sort of a matter of surviving like the next six months um, because stuff was just getting dire. Like I felt like more financially underwater um, and uh, and yeah, so somehow I managed to sort of squeak through like th maybe one of the most dark sort of periods of in my life uh, personally and just money wise and uh and got to school um amazing yeah and did games form part of that like did you take consoles with you was that did you feel like that was part of your identity somehow i i, I absolutely did and at that point i had like a pretty large library of games and movies and a tv which a lot of people then like didn't have like um and that yeah, I like I became sort of like an entertainment resource for a lot of people because I lived in the dorms for my first year because I entered as a freshman. Um, yeah. And so the dorms also had LAN uh, capability. And so uh, Halo LAN 
stuff was pretty common at that point because I wasn't the only person with an Xbox. Um, and also, uh, I remember playing Warcraft 3 multiplayer with people like right away. Um, games were definitely like a, a really common thing uh, in the dorms. And so, yeah, that was, that was an opportunity to socialize with people and it was an opportunity to be myself without worrying about what people thought they knew about me or, or thought they understood about me. Um, and it was a transformative moment, um, as far as my life went, but as far as whether I would have anything to do with games, that was not at all something that, uh, that I thought about. Um, so when did that change? Um, so, uh, Sophomore year, Davis introduced uh, a new program, like a new uh, discipline and major called Techno-Cultural Studies. Okay. Uh, which is sort of a, a smash between uh, media production. This was like back in 2003, I think. Uh, media production and visual arts and art history and sociological sort of exploration of technology and history. Um, that sounds good. Yeah, it was all very interesting to me. Uh, and so since I was a art studio major, I decided to go with theory of technocultural studies um, and sort of exploring like systems design and, and the way that we interact with technology and, and how that's shaped who we are as humans. And I think that that dovetailed kind of nicely with my interest in video games but again it wasn't something that i really saw as as something to do because this was still at a point where this is sort of pre new games criticism yeah um, i think that old man murray was maybe just starting and i think that um people like karen gillen hadn't like really done a ton of video games writing until slightly later at that time um and Ian Bogost hadn't really been a thing, but uh, that's just started. But were you to happen. still reading that? Were you still like, like you still kind of had a hand in the the games press? You were still reading magazines and websites yeah, I was by still this reading point, whatever magazines I could get my hands on. Especially like this is right when Ziff started to, to just explode and make a ton of magazines, yeah. and also when more and more websites became really prominent, uh, including IGN and GameSpot and. Uh, and so that just the amount of information available for someone interested in video games just sort of exploded at that point. And, uh, and I consumed a lot of it and it still didn't really occur to me that it was something that I could do or that I wanted to do until I think it was 2005 and watching a very interesting rapid evolution of games media um, in North America anyway, I wasn't, I still wasn't paying a lot of attention to what was happening in the UK, although the UK had its own sort of parallel, but different trajectory and evolution of games writing. Um, yeah. Uh, but X like G4 was coming into its own, um, one up be started becoming a thing where these people like with personalities would start to talk and podcasts were, be were becoming like a thing in the broad cultural conversation. And one up started doing podcasts and, and video and, 
it just set something off along with the sort of introduction of the new consoles. Like everything seemed very exciting. Like there were very interesting conversations happening and, and, uh, and I just became much more engaged in it. And then, uh, it was around that time where at the end of the year I met Anthony, uh, he's told a version of the story, I believe. Um, and we sort of yeah, you were both working in Tower Records, right? Yeah, we we worked together at Tower Records, um, and sort of bonded over talking about video games. And it was just generally exciting and like interesting and and engaging. And increasingly, I saw like this interactive entertainment becoming something that seemed like it was breaching the public conversation in a way that it hadn't previously. And, and it coincided with needing to do like a sort of senior project for my TCS major, um, and really being super engaged with everything that was happening at one up and just thinking, you know, we could do something like this. And we had another friend that we were working with. I don't remember if Anthony talked about that or not, but, um, yeah, he mentioned just, the other guy. Yeah. Uh, we just started doing this stuff and writing about stuff and, and just talking about stuff. And we'd started a podcast and, and did that. And it just, it turned into a sense of we could do this. Like, yeah, this is the thing that we could do, which seems really weird, but it's a thing that we could do. Um, <laughs> did you feel like, were you kind of a, an a evangelical person? Like, did you feel like, um, like this is very much kind of when it felt to me that games sort of became much more mainstream that like, were you an evangelist for like, no, this isn't just a, a kid's thing. This is, that, that sounds really lame, but you know, at the time I certainly remember feeling like that as well. Like, I, I, like oh, I don't, people don't understand games really. I wasn't shouting it from the rooftops or anything like that. I did. Um, like there were opportunities to sort of talk about games during some of my TCS projects. And I, and I would, um, but I wasn't like running around, like just like opining to people that they just needed to get with it because games of the future. Like, I don't think that I've ever quite been in that camp, but I did feel like, especially around the time that Bioshock came out, feeling like games have a capacity as a self-reflexive medium in the way that very few things do. And artists have been like really trying to do things like this for a long time uh, and thinking for a golden moment that God, what if games can be this? What if they can be like this art form that is incredibly sort of reflective of who we are as people um, and literary, like because Bioshock was a game that felt very literary um, and like to the point where reading about Bioshock made me, curious about Ayn Rand as like the sort of not source material but as like a, a sort of tee off point for it and just suffering through a lot of Ayn Rand uh, and really hating it because god that she's terrible seeing a game like Bioshock is like this sort of evisceration of objectivist thought and utopia was like just really just really interesting to me and yeah and so around that time, I think that Anthony and I both said, well, this is like something that we feel passionate about. This is something that maybe we could do. Um, and so Anthony finished school before I did. 
uh, I had a fifth year to try to finish the TCS stuff because it was such a new major that all the classes hadn't been offered to sort of allow someone to finish that degree. And so uh, Anthony actually got an internship with one up as like the my cheats intern before like while I was still in school. Uh, and so that was our in like the thing that we talked about before about meeting people and sort of engaging with communities and like really building relationships in these, these very small fields to try to find success in them. Like that was something that Anthony had really put his foot forward on. Uh, and, and so we moved to the Bay area, uh, in 2007, um, literally 10 years ago, I think in a day or two, uh, and he continued that and I got, uh, staffing gigs to, which made a lot more than he did like to pay. I paid more in rent than he did. Um, like sort of slightly subsidizing what he was doing because I knew that that was like, that was the thing that we wanted to do. Um, and did and, you kind of ever have that conversation though, where you're like, right, I'm going to go now and then we'll both, but we'll both figure out a way of getting there together kind of thing. Yeah. I think that that was like, when he got the my cheats thing, I think that there were sort of discussions about like that being an in, um, because we had, we had talked about it before. I remember our friend, the other dude who, uh, would write about stuff with us, got a gig as QA, I think at, uh, at crystal dynamics. And so he got a GDC pass and, Anthony went to GDC because he could, cause he didn't have like a job that kept him from doing it and he wasn't in school. And so one night he came back from San Francisco and we drove back out to San Francisco and sort of just, like walked around the Moscone area, like just sort of taking it all in. Uh, and that included like, I think being at a party where some one of people were and like, seeing all of them there and watching them hang out together and just being like, we can't be those people that bother them right now. Cause that's super weird. It's super <laughs> weird. Uh, and so we left. Um, but yeah, I it's think such that, a weird thing though, that, that whole, like the relationship, especially with, with podcasters, cause they, you know, that was, they were a lot of the first podcasts I listened to as well. Like you, you do form that relationship with people that, it's hard to kind of to forget sometimes that you know you don't know these people they don't know who you are right as and much I, as it does feel like you know them you know god i feel so much more awkward about it because i become friends with so many of those people like i like like actual human friends that i feel close to that i care about and it just feels so weird in retrospect like looking back <laughs> and being like i was starstruck by you at one point um and this like that's definitely one of the weirder things in my life is is some of these relationships that I have with these people that I used to just like not worship because it never got to that point, but who I just like really respected and just like absolutely look forward to everything that they were putting out um, and now doing stuff with them and like hugging them and like being their friend is just like a very strange evolution of my life. That's beautiful. Um, we're going to come back to that in a second. I'm going to, I'm going to take a brief aside to do some... Uh, relatively quick fire questions sure so um arthur if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul what game are you best at well that was an ominous <laughs> bang uh <laughs> it really was yeah i have two options uh 
Geometry Wars Retro Evolved or Pac-Man Championship Edition DX? Oh, those are both very good choices. Um, if you had to pick. Between the two, uh, I was top 100 for Pac-Man Championship Edition DX uh, on the five-minute first course um, when that came out before the leaderboards got busted. So that was the one, that, and like I think I was. I like, was also top 100 on that game. Yeah, I think I was like in the top thousand on Geometry Wars for a while. But um, so if I had to pick between the two, it seems like Pac-Man would be the one I'd have a better chance of surviving. Pac-Man, that was the one where there was there was a perfect run. Like you could that that I think that's why I liked it so much is that you could there was a definite like perfect run to that. You just had to execute perfectly. Theoretically, but I think that people thought would think that they found the perfect run and then someone would eventually figure out a way to do a better run. Um, oh, it's such a good game. Yeah. It was, it was borderline perfect. Um, and, and in its own way, I think that geometry wars and to an extent, geometry wars too also were perfect. Um, so, so yeah, that's Pac-Man. Yeah, no, they're amazing. DX is um, the game that I pick. If, uh, like, are you a competitive gamer? Have you ever been locked in a in a high score battle? Like, those are very much high score battle games. Like, oh, with those games, like those game, like score competition with friends took over my life for periods of time. Like, I, Nick Sutner and I had a back and forth on pacifism in Geometry Wars two for like six weeks. Um, with Pac Man Championship, did you win? I think I did, but it was always back and forth. It was it was super super back and forth, and then someone would go and get like thirty million more than the other person because at a certain point in that game, like just five more seconds of survival is so many more points. Yeah. Um, with Pac-Man Championship Edition DX, uh, that really just dominated the IGN offices for a good three or four week period um, where it was like me and Scott Bromley and Per Schneider and Ryan Scott and some other people just like constantly trying to one-up each other in that game. Um, so I've definitely been caught up in that. Do you still think like uh, this has come up on the show a few times? Like, and that kind of those Xbox 360 sort of arcade games, particularly that that seems like a golden age for kind of the the high score challenge. There's there's been very little recently that kind of has has had that same effect for me. The only two I, I can think of are Thumper and um, Next Machina. Like, do you do you still have those games now? Um, I think Next Machina comes close. I think that Next Machina sort of fumbles some pretty key parts of it, and it's also so long. That that really yeah. kills the score chase element. Um, I think it's hard because there's an expectation that games need to be gigantic now, even if yeah. they're like these smaller arcade-derived titles. Like, I developers just can't seem to just not like they need to chill the fuck out and make an arcade game with a score chase element with a level of stability and and mastery that they're just not providing like I, I think that Pac-Man Championship Edition DX2 is a perfect example of fucking up a good thing with too much stuff yes uh, Geometry Wars Retro Evolved 3 is another example of just not understanding the sort of fundamental structure of a score chase game and never actually played that that's that's the one that with bosses and stuff right that seems yeah it has bosses but it really also has loadouts that you have to earn 
And that just so fundamentally changes like the way that the score chase and that works. And it's just, it's a bad, it's a net negative. Um, it's a net negative. And, and I think um, that uh, Anthony on the last podcast was just talking about how he feels like Nighthawk 2 actually makes so many weird changes to the game and so much randomization that it makes it hard to love as an arcade game the way the original was. Oh really? I didn't think there was a huge difference aside from the kind of visuals and like the the projectiles. I mean, the, I suppose that it, is quite a big difference. It randomizes the weapons you start with, and that that yeah, seems no, like a huge a, bit weird. a huge challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that people need to stop getting a, getting in their own way. Um, Towerfall is yeah. an example of a game that doesn't get in its own way, and I think that it's like an, a good example of what you're talking about. Um, okay, well, on a, on a sort of similar tip, I suppose, like, have, has there ever been a game that's kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to uninstall it and remove it from your system because it was getting in the way? I mean, I, th- I think I'm, I live in one of those games now, still. <laughs> uh, like, I played more Dota 2 than I played anything, ever. I played more Dota 2 than I will ever play anything, ever, again. Uh, I don't think that it's like even close. Um, if I ever have time to play another game as much as I played uh, Dota Two, then something will have gone seriously wrong in my life. <laughs> but do you ever like? Do you feel? Do you feel any guilt over that? Like, do you ever feel like it's wasted time? Sure, I think that very few games will make you feel like you've wasted your time the way that Dota can. Um, <laughs> and yet you keep going back I do because it's also the most rewarding game I've ever played um, easily uh, and so so it's that dichotomy and I think that it's it's ability to be an emotionally crippling experience is part of why it's so good um, but it's also why I don't necessarily recommend everyone play it but you're not that's not gonna go away anytime soon you're still no because now you're you're luxuriating all this free time now now it's like the basketball court that i meet people at it's it's just the social thing that that i do with friends you know so that's nice that's good um if uh, if you are prone to such things arthur what was your your worst rage quit hmm I'm not a big rage quitter. I definitely, like, I think Anthony might have talked about this when you two spoke. Uh, I was playing God of War 2 uh, on a, on the hard difficulty and got to... It's a part where you're, you're escorting this guy through, like, a really brutal sort of side-scrolling section and you have to smash his face into a book and keep him alive and... I just died very close to the end for like the third time in a row and really just furiously spiked his his dual shock uh right in front of him. It was <laughs> it was not I felt pretty bad for uh for doing that. But uh, other than that, um But there was an instant regret with that though. That was a, a moment sure. of pure passionate rage and then oh, uh, God, I mean I've yelled God. at at the TV playing review games. I think that there is a unique level of stress involved in reviewing games for a living. Um, because it's not, now it's not 
you're wasting my time. It's like, I have a limited amount of time and, and I don't know when you're over and I don't know what I need to beat you. And I'm just running out of time. Um, so yeah, it's, a. Uh, I, I'm not a big rage person, but you know, the, the job definitely makes things complicated sometimes. <laughs> um, well, on, on a completely different subject then, like, given the kind of breadth of emotions video games are, are capable of evoking, uh, one of the rarest is still uh, laughter. So, Arthur, what games have really made you laugh? Oh, God. Um, Psychonauts. Uh, I think that I've laughed during a fair amount of Bioware games. Um, it's Yeah, it's hard. A lot of games just aren't funny uh no it's tricky i think it's but, just really uh, hard for games to do i think double fine is pretty okay at that honestly so if i had to pick games that consistently made me laugh it'd be double fine's games um okay and so the, the last bit of this part like do you have um like a, a chicken soup game is there a game you go to for for comfort or that has got you through a particularly tough time uh fallout 3 definitely fallout 3 any particular reason um, Fallout 3 came out at a pretty low moment for me. Uh, I had, it was a year after, after I graduated, like, I didn't know what my prospects were, like, it was proving extremely difficult to break into the game's press, um, like, cause this is when, like, the, the Great Recession was just, like, really starting to grind oh, out. Oh, of course, yeah. Um... I, like, there was a college ex that had just really broken my heart, and I had allowed her to sort of, like, put it through a meat grinder multiple times, um, and, yeah, so at that time, like, that's around when Fallout 3 came out, and I just remember getting completely lost in it, and really cherishing the opportunity to explore this world that in a lot of ways is very, very melancholy, um, like yeah, no, absolutely. Like that's one of the main reasons I've never really connected with the Fallout game is I just I find them very unpleasant places to be. I don't I don't want to be around in that kind of gray green world. It, it's it's weird because it's a place where just millions of people have obviously died, and there's all these bits of evidence and explorations of how they lived and how they died, but it's also a, a place where things are are very alive. Um. And, like, these sort of cultures have sprung up and begun to fill in the cracks. And, and I just found that it's both assuaging for someone in a period of depression and suggestive that there could that there's always hope. There's always a way forward. Um, and in some ways, in those games giving you the opportunity to be that hope, to be that way forward, is, is very corny, but nonetheless resonated with me absolutely that's i mean and obviously you know that kind of uh proved to be true because you did end up getting this this job in games that, that you sort of sought after all this time and like you kind of touched on it briefly a second ago with um talking about you know the the, the kind of the grind of reviews and stuff and you've mentioned it a lot in the past like did that like how much of a kind of fundamental change in how you you kind of play games you think that has had on you like all these years of being a reviews editor um 
in a lot of ways not a ton because i was always the kind to sort of devour a game as opposed to just like lightly sampling it over and over again until i finished um when i started a game i wanted to finish it even if it was bad um and i think reviews have actually broken me of that uh, somewhat um in that i i try to tell people look if you're playing a game and you don't enjoy it then just stop like, you have a, a limited amount of time on this earth. Like, life is too short to waste time playing a game you don't like, watching a TV show you don't like, reading a book you don't like, unless you have to. Um, and uh, so in that respect, I, I, I don't think that it's changed. I think that uh, I am somewhat more deliberative. Like, I, I, I try to really understand why I feel the way I feel as opposed to just acknowledging that I feel a certain way. Um, but uh, that sounds good just overall in general that's yeah. a good way to be well theoretically and like was was that like because that's kind of what you you became kind of most involved in was the review process was that what you would you were interested in when you first sort of decided that oh, this is something i'd like to try like was that an area that you you wanted to work in i think reviews reviews have always been like that sort of holy grail of a lot of games writing because it's like the moment of truth. Like it's all been leading up to like what the game actually is like, fuck all the marketing, fuck the preview cycle. Like all, all of that is gone. There's no more obfuscation. Like the game is what it is. And now it's time to figure out what that is. Um, and I think that, uh, I've always been a person with strong opinions and and the opportunity to to express that opinion is is always been alluring um, yeah and so it's kind of one of those sort of careful what you wish for things like as a, as a kid who wouldn't have had access to a lot of games now sure. here's all the games and also write about them all in this tiny time window yeah I think that it's made me more appreciative of games that are good um in some ways more understanding of games that are bad but um writing reviews and being in the industry has made me more respectful i think toward the people who make games even the ones that turn out bad um i have real sympathy for for developers that make games with problems because i know that nobody wants to make a bad game and there are just way too many ways to do it like it's really easy to make a bad game. It's really, really hard to make an okay game, and it's almost impossible to make a good one. So, I don't know. And like, sort of thinking back over the, the this sort of period, these past sort of ten years or so, like, are there any? Hello. Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned it already, but are there any other games that kind of really stick out as being important for whatever reason? Like, maybe sort of changed your understanding of games, or or just came at a pivotal point. Um, I, I mean, Bioshock felt important. The first Bioshock, uh, I think that gone home is a game that felt like it normalized something that I, I think people really needed to feel was okay to do and to explore in games. Um, yeah. And they weren't the first to do it, obviously. There were other like indie devs making like twine stuff and like very simple games that, that, did some more things, but just like having those fine honed sort of triple A sensibilities uh, applied to that kind of story just felt really important and valuable. Um, 
I still absolutely adore the Mass Effect games. Um, all like Andromeda. All of them. Andromeda is is weird. I have a lot of thoughts about Andromeda, but the I mean the trilogy. We'll just say the trilogy is just like that is one of my favorite sort of narrative experiences across media. Period. Um, and I and I like. I I feel such strong emotions about that series and about th- those games and like to the point where I get like weird almost physical sort of uh feelings uh when I hear the soundtrack. It's just that those are games that are important to me. And do you think that's because of the the the, the games themselves or are the, the sort of, are they linked to sort of certain times in your your life which you've mentioned before? Um, I think that it's, it's primarily because of, um, because of the games, honestly, I think that, that the, I, I think that the writing is good. The characterization is good. Having the opportunity to watch those characters grow and develop and also to play a part in guiding the ways that they do just felt really successful, like in a way that I never would have imagined a game would pull off and who knows, maybe nobody will ever do that again because it's got to feel like the dumbest thing in the world to try to do. Uh, although in retrospect, I, the, every one of those games came at a very different time in my life. Uh, the first one came, uh, right as right after I graduated from college and right after I had gone through a bad breakup, which would turn into a sort of recurring, repeating bad breakup. Uh, um, (laughs) The second game came out right as I was starting in the games press as a permanent employee um, and was also the moment where I think Justin McElroy and I became friends uh, as we sort of bonded over loving that game and talking about it. Um, And then the third game came out right after we announced Polygon um, and was like a big review for us and felt really important to do right and so so yeah again these are like games exist as the background noise in like our lives uh, or in my life certainly so and so so how about how about now like basically like like do you has, has it's kind of changed your your appreciation or your love of games in any any way like do you think you'll have one of these kind of fallow periods where you maybe step away for a bit Aside from Dota 2, obviously. Um, I mean, like I said before... Are you still as excited, I guess, is what I'm asking? I am. I'm, I feel like I'm in a weird position right now, and I, and I was talking to someone yesterday, and they, they expressed a similar sentiment. I'm really excited for the Xbox One X as someone who has a 4K television and like an Atmos setup and all that, um, as someone who's been gaming on it for a year and a half. Uh, and that puts me in this weird spot where I, that's where I want to play all the stuff coming out, but all, almost all the stuff comes out before that system comes out. And it's like made me wonder if I should wait to play things to play it on that. Uh, but with the podcast, I don't necessarily feel like I have that option. I feel like I need to remain relatively current on things. Um, but, uh, I don't think I'll have as much time to play stuff. I think I'll need to be a little more selective. Um, but I'm still excited for stuff. Like, I'm still really curious to see where stuff ends up and, and how it ends up. Um, and when a game 
is supposed to be good. It get, when it gets really good reviews, I get excited for it. Like I just bought Mario and Rabbids uh, before we started yeah. recording, and hopefully it's done downloading by the time we're done. Um, so yeah. But do you think like will you? I mean, I suppose I suppose you still got the podcast. I was going to say, would you miss sort of like writing about things and stuff? But obviously, you'll still do some freelance stuff, and you've still got the podcast to kind of talk about what you're playing and what you're doing, and that's often like the best way to get out of your system anyway. Sure. I, I will miss writing about games. Um, I will also not miss writing about games uh, <laughs> because it's hard. It's, it's really hard um, to write review after review after review um, because for me, I felt pressured to say something substantive and lasting about a game it with not a lot of time to think about it um yeah and that's like that's the thing that was always frustrating to me is how little time there is to sort of form an opinion uh and to write it up and and as a writer who cares about the craft as massively pretentious as that sounds it's just like it becomes so difficult to avoid leaning on crutches or cliches in those situations. And it, it, it's a challenge that I think usually I was up to and that Polygon has been up to, but it's hard. It's hard not to rely on the same constructions. It's hard not to rely on the same sentiments over and over again, because like you have pieces of a thing that you need to hold together. And sometimes a cliche is like the only bridge you can build from one thing to another. Has it like just on on that subject? I'm just this is purely personal kind of interest, really. But like, are there any um, cliches that you feel like you've kind of developed yourself? If you know what I mean, like certain constructions of a way of um, critiquing something that you're like, oh, this works, and you you've maybe done like a, a signature style. I suppose I'm thinking. Uh, I think that I have a writing style that comes through um, that I'm comfortable with that isn't necessarily the way that other people write. I think that honestly, uh, because when you get heavy into review stuff, it's, it's hard to sort of notice that's that, that kind of thing. This is one of the few things that I found sort of NeoGAF helpful for a few times was that I would publish several reviews in rapid succession and someone trying to be a real dick would try to analyze my writing style and say, Oh, well here he's just saying this same thing again. And it's like, you're an asshole, but you're not wrong. That's a good point. <laughs> Let me fix that. And I don't even remember at this point what it was, but I do remember on a few occasions, like people trying to be assholes about the writing, like helped me see where certain things were getting repeated. Um, but this is also why it's important to have like a consistent editor of your stuff or, or multiple editors of your stuff so that they understand your writing and sort of see the crutches you lean on and try to like push you off of them to get you to stand on your own two feet. Um, yeah. Or I least, mean, that's what you've been doing as well. Like yeah. yourself. Yeah. That, that was the biggest part of my job, honestly, um, that and sort of crisis management, uh, yeah, it was definitely. Do you miss that? Do you miss the kind of the intense intensity of it? Because it will be, you know, we're, we're coming up to sort of review period now. Do you get like weird PTSD sort of flashbacks? I I was I was talking to my partner about this actually, and it is it does feel strange like going into the fall and not having that sort of crushing amount of work because there is like a 
and this is going to sound really weird, I'm sure, because it's fucking writing about video games, but uh, the sense of purpose uh, and this sense of knowing knowing exactly how you're going to be spending every day for 10 weeks or three months. Um, there is a kind of comfort in that. Uh, I yeah. think that um, I, and I think a lot of other people have difficulty valuing themselves based on, on who they are as a person, as opposed to the amount of work that they do. That seems like a particularly American problem, although it's a Western problem as well. Um, that, yeah, I think so. That the only self-worth that you can find sometimes is the worth you get from working really hard and killing yourself doing a job. And like, that's, I always felt most useful when I was just ruining myself doing review stuff. Um, and it's not healthy, but it's, it's true. Um, and it was interesting watching the discourse last week about a certain op-ed about crunch. Um, yeah. Talking like sort of speaking to the seduct the seductiveness of it, whether that's healthy or not. And I think that it clearly it's not, but I, I mean, it's definitely something that Phil and I talked about a lot, just that, um, it's a really nightmarish, hellish, uh, physically demanding, exhausting time. And I think that part of both of us very much looked forward to it all year because there was no more wondering what we were going to be doing. It was like, well, we know exactly what we're going to be doing. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it is one of those, like, I don't think it's, it's necessarily exclusive to, to video games either. Like, like I, I, I Walt, uh, who wrote that, he was on the show a few weeks ago, and we were talking about not not about crunch, but about writing and about how, like a lot of times with writing, you know, you have to have a deadline. That's that's how it works, you know. And where you how you use your time before that is is up to you. But you know, inevitably that that deadline forces you to do it, and often you know can surprise you with what you're able to accomplish with that. Yeah, it's very it's very intoxicating. Yeah. If there is, is there anything that kind of hasn't come up that you felt like you wanted to mention, like please take that opportunity. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, it's weird. It still feels weird having left, um, but it also feels strange um, watching people talk about it or react to it or try to sort of like read into why I did it. Like there are a lot of people that sort of went into armchair psychiatrist mode when I announced it uh, and talked about like the my tone on the podcast and a bunch of other stuff and and I don't know I your tone is pretty consistent Arthur I'd say yeah well um, I think that I I think that I've expressed how important video games are to me um, but I also I feel like it's so easy for some people to get really involved in games and just sort of lose sight of everything else. And, and that's, the, that's like a, a key takeaway for me that, that there is more than this than games. Like, and I, and I think that people get so caught up in, in defining themselves through that. And it, and it just bums me out because there's so many, better ways to find that sort of value than getting lost in video games than like getting invested in the games that you like 
as an expression of yourself, of, of like the, the platforms of you like as an expression of your sort of value as a person. Um, and that's something that I wish people would be better at sort of learning to break out of. How do you mean? That, that, that's, that's interesting. Like, do you mean like n not defining yourself by the things you like as much or just being more selective with that? I, I think that I think the not defining yourself by the things that you like. I think that that's a trap. Um, it's very much a, a sort of consumer trap that we've largely found ourselves in um, that we feel like we have to define ourselves or, or there's this like compulsion to define yourself based on what you consume. Yeah. And, and I don't think that that's healthy. I think that that is really undermining for people's sense of self-worth and, and, and I think that ultimately it's, it's kind of harmful. Um, and I, and I wish that we taught people how to sort of value themselves, uh, outside of of these things like just stuff um and like and it's something that i struggle with as well like it's not like i'm coming from sort of like this enlightened perspective um but i think that it's good to want to be more than the things that you like well that's you have that to look forward to then often. yeah that's yes. um well, that, that was that was great. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. Was that okay for you? Yeah, no, it was great. Thanks, thanks so much for taking the time. Cool.
遊びの地途中で投げ出す奴らには体で思えさせるぞ背が高さんしろ背が高さんしろ背が高さん